News, notes, and Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Robinson waits. Here comes the pitch. And there goes a line drive to left field. Swan is after it. He leaps it over his head against the wall. Here comes Gillian. Feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. Levels about a couple of times. Shall kicks and he fires. Rose Wayne. Turn it, turn it, get out, get out, all right. Hit number 4192. A live drive single into left center. Swung on and hit in the air to deep center. Finley back, away back, on the track, at the wall, gone. A three run home run for Scott Brosius. Scott Brosius might well be. The left-handers line. The 0-2 pitch on the way. Swag, it's over. He has done it. High fastball, Randy Johnson being mobbed by Scott Bradley down to greet him and the entire Mariner team here on the 2nd of June. It ends at 9.51 Pacific Daylight Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 27th. Show number 46 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll have our regular weekly Talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola discussing the future of daily fantasy games, evaluating injury history for second-half roster moves, and buying low. In our regular Friday matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at coming matchups for Angels left-hander Hector Santiago in Kansas City to take on the Royals and righty Jordano Ventura, Arizona right-hander Josh Colmenter at San Diego against Padres Southpaw Eric Stultz, and more. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com founder and Fanalytics columnist Ron Chandler talks about the ongoing battle. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Let's talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, it's our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be here. In a Facts and Flukes column this week at BaseballHQ.com, analyst Jeff Tomich says that Milwaukee shortstop John Segura hasn't followed up last season's big breakout, and in fact, that this season even affirms that last season was pretty much a fluke based on a strong first half. Give us the details on what Jeff says about John Segura. Well, you know, John Segura is a guy that, uh, John Segura is the kind of guy that's exactly the reason to, to subscribe to Baseball HQ. Segura had a great breakout in the first half of last season. Uh, hit some home runs. I mean, it was a, it was a good first half. We, uh, if you look at the numbers in the first half last year, you're looking at 11 homers, 24 stolen bases, 327 batting average. This guy looked like a top shortstop. 
Uh, and then we went into the second half, and, and, and you know, as you know, first half numbers always kind of cover up second half numbers. Second half, one home run, 20 stolen bases, 255 BA. Overall, the line for last year looked pretty good, but if you looked at, uh, at the baseball forecaster, it talked to you about the fact that Segura was likely to be overrated and very risky on a downside of a 250 BA, 25 stolen bases because he didn't have the skills to support what he was doing. And you look at the, uh, the fact fluke column, he's doing, in fact, exactly what we said he was going to do. Here's a guy with uh, last year's first half was fueled by an above-average hit rate. Uh, so now we've got a huge gap between uh, last year's XBA uh, and this year's batting average. Also, his ground ball rate, he's a, a below average in terms of power. A home run per fly is way down from what it was in the first half of last year. Uh, and so you've got a guy who's kind of fast and hits about 250. But uh, when he's on base at less than three out of 300 OBA, uh, his stolen base percentage is down. Uh, he's not, he's not, um, so his opportunities are down. He's not, uh, he's getting caught more this year than he was a year ago. Here's a guy who's going to make that downside pretty close. He's, uh, if you look at the total projection for the year, we said what downside again of 250, 25 stolen bases. And overall, it's looking like about 255, 30 stolen bases. So those stolen bases are worth something, but nowhere near the kind of thing that John Segura was going at in some drafts early in the season. And to be fair, we are still projecting Jean Segura to pick up about 20 bucks for the rest of the season, but it's almost entirely on his uh, stolen base performance of 16 bags, and bags are a little tougher to come by, as we know this year. Uh, only a 266 projected batting average, uh, maybe two or three home runs and 20 RBIs. He'll score some runs for you, up around 40 runs, and runs is often an overlooked category, but boy, uh, you're sure right about uh, Jean Segura being a fluky guy last year, and Baseball HQ recognized it, and uh, I hope that for the sake of everybody listening that they listened to the uh, recommendations of the site about John Segura not to overpay. Nick, I had a batting buyer's guide this week uh, that looked at hitters with unusually strong reverse splits. That is, uh, left-handed hitters who do better against left-handed pitching than right-handed pitching, and vice versa for right-handed hitters. And uh, the reason I did this, just so people understand, is because there's more um, people playing the daily games, and it's so important to get your matchups right on a daily game basis. The other, but the other part of getting uh, an advantage in daily games is that you roster hitters, especially who everybody else doesn't. It doesn't take any great skill to, to roster Mike Trout, but if you have Mike Trout and he does well, everybody else has Mike Trout, so you're no further ahead. So what I was thinking is a lot of guys are going to look at a left-handed hitter playing against a left-handed pitcher and say, I don't want him. But there are left-handed hitters that you should be rostering under that circumstance, and one of them is Ben Revere. Yeah, you know, I, you're absolutely right about that and made a really good point, I think, in that piece, Patrick, that, that you've got to roster guys in daily leagues that are not on other people's teams. You know, if you're in that side of a situation where everybody can roster everybody, then uh, you've got to roster different guys or you're going to be the same as everybody else. And so looking at the kind of split you were looking at is really important, and that's another reason for people to to, uh, be, to be subscribers and to look at Baseball HQ. Uh, ben Revere, as you pointed out, is, uh, is one of those strange guys who hits left-handed pitchers better than right-handed pitchers, even though he's a left-handed batter. And so you might be tempted to keep him out of a lineup when he's facing a uh, facing a left-hander, but in fact, he's likely to do much, much better. In fact, his on-base percentage over left-handed pitchers, 368 OBP against left-handed pitchers, almost 100 points ahead of, uh, of when he's a right-handed pitcher. So if you play the normal, the normal uh, wisdom and stuck him in there only when he's facing a right-handed pitcher, you would lose a whole lot of uh, 
of quality out of Ben Revere. Uh, another guy you talked about is Juan Uribe. Same kind of thing. Um, hits much hits much better against Juan Uribe. He's a right-handed hitter. Actually, it's better against right-handed pitchers than he does against left-handers. Uh, so it's it's a it's a really good thing to take a look at those splits if you're going to play daily games, especially. Or if you're going to play in in some full season leagues allow you to adjust your roster uh, weekly or bi-weekly uh, or even monthly uh, or even daily I should say so um, if that's the case then in any situation where a daily matchup is presented to you it certainly behooves you to think about rostering guys who are counterintuitive shall we say because you do want to get those players who are not on everybody else's roster as far as Ben Revere is concerned we're projecting 290 for the rest of the season which isn't bad absolutely no power but he should score 30 runs or so and he'll steal you 18 bags probably in the low 20s for uh, rotisserie value uh, Nick Stephen Nickrand wrapped up his series of one skill away starting pitchers by looking at pitchers by their times through the batting order. Of course, we expect that the first time through the pitcher is going to have an advantage, the second time through a little less so, and so on down the road through the third time through. And in fact, when Stephen looked at it, he found that only 15 starting pitchers in all of Major League Baseball have a 125 base performance value, that's elite level going through the opposing order for the third time. And one of the most glaring examples of pitchers who have real rapid fall-offs yeah, is Homer, Homer Bailey. Bailey. You, know, you look at Homer Bailey, and there's some, some really interesting things that Stephen pointed out. Homer Bailey looks like, at this point, like he's not having a real good season. A 4.80 ERA, 1.43 whip. Uh, not the kind of guy you want in your team when there are better guys out there. But if you look at time through the batting order, first time through, 3.86 ERA, uh, 1.12 whip, 178 BPV, reading nice the first time through. Second time through, drops off a whole lot. 6.58 ERA, 2.0 whip, uh, minus 12 BPV, and you go, all right, this guy's good one time around. But that's not true. Third time through the batting order, 2.52 ERA, 1.32 whip, 109 BPV. So somehow the second time through the order, Homer Bailey is is dropping off a lot. And, and Steven suggests that part of that may be just focus. You know, you've got to stay focused all the way through the ball game, and he's just kind of letting up somehow the second time through the order before he bears down again the third time through. If he can get some focus and maintain what he does all the way through a game, he could have a huge second half. Yeah, that's one of those things, though, Nick. It seems to me like if he can get his focus, then good things will follow. But boy, there's certainly nothing to suggest he's going to. And it seems like a fairly risky play. The kind of thing we talked about practically every show is you have to make a decision about a guy like Homer Bailey on the basis of if something happens based on what you need to happen for your team to be successful. If you're protecting a lead and uh, you're you know first or second in your league, then probably this is a kind of risk you don't want to take because he might not rega- regain that focus and he might continue to be just the player he's proved himself to be this year. On the other hand, if you're sixth and you have aspirations to make the money, then maybe Homer Bailey is the kind of guy you need to gamble on. Maybe so. And another thing to point out about Homer Bailey at this point is that that horrible ERA he's got in the, fir- in the first half, XERA 3.56, uh, excellent dom, good control, a high ground ball rate. This is a guy who's showing some skills. And so there really is a chance he could do something in the second half. But you're absolutely right. If you're protecting the lead, he's not the kind of guy you want to throw out there. But uh, if you're if you're trying to come back from a uh, from from further in the pack, here's a guy that may be worth a little bit of risk because the skills are there to uh, to help support performance. 
Baseball HQ is projecting Homer Bailey for $13 of production the rest of the way, a middling sort of uh, value. Seven wins on a fairly decent Cincinnati team, 339 ERA, 129 whip, not bad numbers, and 90 strikeouts in 101 innings. And as Steven suggests, with a little bit of upside, you could easily see maybe 10 wins, a 310 ERA, 110 whip, 100 strikeouts or so, and maybe he's worth 20 bucks. So it's a, it's a decision that we'll leave to our individual listeners to cogitate upon. And finally, Nick, Ray Murphy's speculator column has been looking at player leaders over the last 31 days. A couple of weeks ago, he looked at the hitters who've been leading the way for the last month. And this week he's focusing on pitchers. And one of the names that popped up that caught my eye was Pittsburgh left-hander Jeff Locke. Yeah, Je- Jeff Locke is... Uh uh, interesting guy. Last season, uh, last season started off extremely well, uh, pitched a real good first half and then kind of fell apart in the second half last year. And what, what got to Jeff Locke in that second half last year was his control. It was okay in the first half. Second half, his control was absolutely awful. 5.5 walks per nine innings, uh, command fell apart and so just did not have a good second half. Wound up with a 5.53 ERA in the second half last year. But what, uh, what Ray pointed out is that at this point, over the last 31 days, Jeff Locke has had outstanding control. In fact, for the season, for 34 innings pitch, small sample size, 1.1 control, 6.1 dom, so low dominance, but extremely good control, and that's led to a 3.74 ERA, but most of that was really the result of one bad start back at the beginning of the season. Uh, the last, his last four starts have been outstanding, 2.54 ERA over the last 31 days, Here's a guy that probably is not rostered in a lot of leagues uh, and might do very, very well uh, as you as you take a look at going on into the second half. We're not projecting him for very, very much. I'll let you you handle that. But a guy that might be worth certainly looking at, uh, as Ray suggested in his speculator column. Yeah, we're projecting a 420 ERA, 137 whip. We're not even counting on him to get too many more starts because Garrett Cole's coming back. And, of course, that means that Locke is probably going to get sent back down. Either he or Brandon Cumption, uh, who have uh, options left, are going to likely be sent down. Uh, negative dollar value for, for Jeff Locke on the Baseball HQ projections. Again, maybe some upside if he's figured things out and he manages to retain that rotation spot. Uh, I actually bid on Jeff Locke and Tout Mixed. I got outbid. There was a fairly serious bidding war, Nick, for, uh, for Jeff Locke, but I think it was more based on that week's matchups rather than on a, on a long-term outlook. A lot of us in Tout Wars Mixed play matchups week to week. So uh, Garrett, Garrett uh, I should say Jeff Locke, you know, like we said with the, uh, with uh, other guys, it's uh, you pays your nickel and you takes your chances. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jocko, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. How you doing this week? Doing fine, thank you. Doing fine. Um, I wish I was doing as fine as George Springer. He's had 200 at bats so far in his first season at the big league level, and he was the lead topic in a facts and flukes piece by Rod Truesdell this week. Springer has hit for all the power we expected, but other than that, it hasn't been smooth sailing. So, what did Rod see with George Springer, and what's your outlook? Well, you know, I think this is one that the analyst community as a whole called uh, called pretty well. Uh, Springer's power is very real. He's showing it. Uh, um, as of this week, as of uh, Rod's column, he had uh, 13 home runs, 220 at-bats. That's pretty good power. His power index is up at 162. But 
look back at the guy's past in the minors. He, this is a guy who K'd 161 times at AAA and AA last year, um, even while he was putting up that gaudy OPS of, uh, of greater than 1,000. Um, anybody who comes in at a, at a sub-70 contact level is going to have a hard time hitting 300 in the majors. And, and Springer's hitting uh, about uh, 240 right now. He might have gone down since then. And his expected batting average isn't that promising. Um, the other interesting thing is that while he has speed, he's not running a lot. And that, that may have more to do the, with the, uh, the Astro lineup and game situations where they are and maybe Springer's early confidence than anything else. But uh, his power is real. It's going to be interesting to see where the rest of the game goes. I think that's a really spot-on analysis. He's around 240. His expected batting average is actually under that a little bit, and it's entirely because of this uh, sub-70% contact rate. You mentioned uh, that it's difficult for a fellow to uh, hit 300 while striking out more than 30% of the time, and I've been racking my brain. I can't think of a single player who's ever done it. I'll go. You can bet after this call is over, I'm going to go look it up and see if I can find somebody in that position. But, boy, if you're striking out... 30% of your at-bats, just putting the ball in play is down to 70% of the time. Yeah, your expected 30, 35% even hit rate is still only going to get you up to about two and a quarter or 230. That's a really tough call for George Springer. The uh, stolen bases have me a bit surprised, though, Jock. He's only running 5% of his opportunities. Do you think that there's any chance he's going to pick that rate up? I think he will at some point in his career. The problem you have with the Astros is, uh, uh, think about it, the other call-up was John Singleton, and he's not a, a great contact guy either, although in the minors he's made a little better contact than, uh, than George Springer has. But uh, he's struggling a little bit with his batting average too. The Astros still aren't scoring a lot of runs. They've had a nice pitching re uh, renaissance, but uh, until they get into some game situations where they have leads or big leads or it's close, uh, where Springer can run. I don't see him running a lot. Well, we have him projected for seven stolen bases down the stretch. We don't expect any improvement in batting average. He'll be right around 240 as it is now. 12 home runs would look nice on a lot of rosters, 41 RBIs for a projection. We're looking at about $14 down the stretch for uh, George Springer. Whether that means uh, somebody you should be looking at or not, I guess depends on how your team is set up. In his bullpen buyer's guide yeah, column, Doug Dennis offered a report about the... B base performance value leaders among relief pitchers so far this year and suggested that based on current productions these might be the guys to target now most of them are closers and obvious names in the american league koji uahara greg holland even sean doolittle a name that surprised me though was brad boxberger the tampa relief pitcher and jake mcgee because that tampa bullpen is not really doing that well what's going on down there and what is doug dennis seeing well, you got Grant Balfour, who's who's obviously struggling, and he may be down for the count. He's uh, he's a little older. He's lost a few ticks off his fastball, perhaps. Uh, Tampa's using a closer committee right now of uh, Joel Peralta, Jake McGee, and uh, and uh, uh, Oviedo. Um, Brad Boxberger isn't in that mix yet. Uh, he's a little bit down on the pecking order. He's fairly new to Tampa Bay, but his day may come, and I think Doug is duly noting this in his column. Boxberger has been one of these guys with periodic control issues. He had them in uh, in San Diego, and who, and he'll also give up an occasional long ball. But this year his strikeouts are rising. His ground ball rate is decent. He's not a, an extreme fly ba baller. He's got about a 40% ground ball rate, and his historical uh, contact control issues are, uh, are 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 heading south now. They're they're improving, and his strikeouts are rising. I really like Brad Boxberger heading into the future.
Now, the question, I guess, remains, given that they paid Grant Bell for a lot of money and he's got the long-term contract or longer than everybody else in this so-called committee, is it possible that Tampa just thinks that they have to let this guy get a lot of save opportunities, if only to justify the money? Yeah, they're going to do that, obviously, but at some point in time, you uh, you give up the ghost, and uh, Balfour really hasn't shown that he's capable of doing this long term, so they're running a lot of different guys in and out of there. Um, I play in deep keeper leagues, and obviously, when you get a guy like Boxberger, who's striking out 13.8 batters every nine innings, and uh, who has an ERA of 3.12, um, you're going to snap him up real quickly. On the other hand, uh, Jake McGee's been the guy that they've gone to in the highest leverage situations, and Boxberger's a bit down on that list with the leverage index under one. Oviedo and Peralta well ahead of him in that regard. Is it possible they see Boxberger as a setup guy, as a sort of a situational, longish sort of guy, and that uh, the committee will really end up being McGee, Peralta, Oviedo, and maybe Balfour because of his contract? You know, in the short run, I think you're right. I, I think the interesting thing about McGee. Um, is that he's a lefty, and he, he doesn't have a lot of bad splits against right-handers, but still it leaves a little bit of a crack for uh, Boxberger. Um, you can make the case for McGee being better and, and more experienced perhaps than he is, but Boxberger right now I'd take either over uh, Peralta or Oviedo. And Bob Berger's playing time tomorrow column looking at the American League Central. He featured Detroit outfielder J.D. Martinez, who has been quite a story. So what did Bob see, and what do you think of the outlook, and how much of it especially is a for-real situation with J.D. Martinez? Well, this is a real interesting situation because all winter we heard reports about how he retooled his, his, uh, his swing. Uh, and it wasn't enough for Houston to keep him. They cut him. Um, Martinez had always hinted at a little bit of power in the majors, but... Right now, he's doing more, more. So he's he's hitting with more power than than he ever has before. I think I heard a stat a couple of days ago where he had at that point 15 extra base hits in June. He had 24 all of last year. Um, if you look at his plate skills, not all of his gains are going to hold. But he's the kind of guy, and we talked about this last last week with uh, Kevin Kiermaier over in Tampa Bay. I think he's a solid deep league play right now and a real good streamer against left-handed pitchers and weak righties. Um, he, he got most of his playing time while Torrey Hunter was nursing a hamstring strain and out of the lineup. But his hitting has really galvanized the Tigers, who were in a deep slump before uh, Martinez was inserted into the lineup. Right now we have him, I think, at 30% playing time at Baseball HQ. But now you have Brad Ausmus, the manager of the Tigers, talking about uh, setting up a four-outfield rotation. I think J.D. Martinez, uh, uh, even if his gains don't hold, I think he's going to take a little more playing time than that, and I think he'll continue to hit for power. Well, it's not like uh, Austin Jackson is earning very much in that regard. Certainly they could uh, get him out of there on an occasional basis, let Torrey Hunter slide over into center field and move the guys around that way. Also, Rajai Davis, for all of his speed, is a subpar defensive outfielder for sure. I was watching a game the other day, and he had a chance to throw a guy out at the plate from short left field, and I'm not kidding you, Jock, the ball barely got to the pitcher's mound before it ran out of steam. So at a certain point, uh, even a guy who's looking for offense starts looking at a defensive outfielder who can't really hit the infield with throws and starts to think maybe I can find something else to, to do out there. So this four-man rotation in the outfield looks like certainly a possibility, and if so, J.D. Martinez looks like a possible buy, at least in deep leagues, as you say. In last week's Starting Pitchers Buyer's Guide, Stephen Nickran looked at starters who struggled the second time through a lineup during a game, talked about this with Harold Nichols a few moments ago on the National League Market Watch, and Stephen called Colby Lewis 
a solid speculation. What does he see in Colby Lewis? Well, th- this is going to be our our HQ on HQ violence segment. I'm going to take uh, issue, a little issue with Stephen on this, which I can do since we're friends and, and, we, and we've been competing in fantasy leagues against each other well before writing for HQ. But first off... Um, as a solid speculation, I'm not. It's almost like jumbo shrimp. And uh, compared, com, uh, when you're talking about uh, Colby Lewis, uh, he's a speculation, but I think he's far from solid. Uh, um, Stephen points out uh, accurately that he's he's good the first time through a lineup. Uh, the second time through the lineup, uh, he's he falls apart. Uh, he's a guy who's never had great philosophy. And Stephen's right; his stamina may have something to do with it with these issues. But now at age 34, coming off a year and a half of elbow and hip injuries, especially in a home run hitting park like Arlington entering the summer, he's got a fly ball rate in the mid-high 40% range. And on a team like the Rangers, where he's going to get poor offensive support this year, I'm staying away from speculations like this, certainly until he starts showing more. Yeah, I don't think I blame you. Baseball HQ hasn't projected as a $1 player, maybe even a $0 player. He'll get you a handful of wins, but not much in the way of strikeouts. He's projected for 60 innings with only 50 strikeouts, ERA over 4, whip over 130. This does not look like the kind of guy that, even in a speculative sort of position, I'm not sure he'd be the kind of guy I'd target right away. Uh, Jock, let's move on to uh, a changes and call-up segment. Uh, we'll just go through this kind of quickly if we can, all from playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. First of all, in Houston, uh, Grossman, Robbie Grossman goes down and uh, LJ Hose is up. What's the story there? Well, it's going to be interesting how much this, how much they play Hose because they, I don't think they gave him much of a chance before. They were enamored with Grossman. They keep playing uh, uh, Alex Presley and Jesus Guzman. I'd love to see Hose get a chance. He has a very limited ceiling, but he makes contact, and that's what that team needs. Um, he's not going to get much time to prove himself. You've got Domingo Santana, uh, a, a decent prospect on the 40-man roster. He's hitting a lot of home runs in, uh, in AAA despite his contact issues. I still think that Houston lineup needs some contact, but I'm just not sure Hose is going to be the guy who gets that opportunity. We're projecting $6 down the stretch. Uh, he's going to pick up a few bags and hit 272, which isn't bad, maybe in about 125 at-bats. Uh, in Los Angeles, Angels, uh, your favorite team and the one that you look at most often, we've talked very often about their bullpen situation. Now it's official, I guess. Ernesto Frieri is out as the closer. Cam Bedrosian's been sent down, and that leaves Joe Smith, the last man standing in the closer role. Yeah, uh, Frieri is never quite out of the save mix just because of L.A.'s poor depth here and, and due to his uh, 11 strikeouts per nine innings. But uh, I, I think uh, Mike Sosha is really uh, fed up with Ernie right now. Uh, he came in yesterday to a very low leverage ninth inning situation facing the bottom of the order with a five-run lead, and he almost turned it into a nightmare. Um, the, I like Joe Smith right here. His numbers have improved this year, but but the Angels are really overworking him right now because of uh, because of what they don't have in the pen. I'm worried that he's due for a tumble. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens and to see what the Angels do on the trade market. Yeah, the trade market is the place that everybody seems to be looking at. The names I've heard include Houston Street down in uh, San Diego, where they're going nowhere fast. They might be looking to get rid of uh, a little bit of salary in Houston Street's case. Do you, can you see the Angels making a legitimate play, and do they have anything to offer? 
Yeah, well, the second part of your question is the real key, PD. I'm not sure what the Angels are offering in, in their attempts to get a closer. As I think we both know, they don't have a very deep minor league. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they come up it with. It might be the case, Jock, that it doesn't matter what they offer San Diego if San Diego's primary motivation is just to get the Houston Street contract off their books. But it will be interesting to see what transpires, especially uh, if the Angels do make some kind of move, then it indicates that they think that they have a chance to make the playoffs. Uh, Grant Green got a start in Los Angeles at third base while David Freeze sat on the bench. Was that a surprise? Well, I, you know, I think part of this was a factor that Freeze was a little bit nicked up. He'd been hit by a pitch the game before and been taken out. Um, I think it is interesting that Green is getting a start at third base. He, he played a lot there during his last uh, demotion to Salt Lake City. Um, he, he doesn't offer you much in the way of plate skills except for an 80% contact rate. He's got a good line drive, all-field swing. Freeze's offensive numbers are anemic. You could see Green get a little more time at third base if his defense can hold up. Clay Buchholz came off the DL for Boston. I don't know whether that's good news or bad for them or for his fantasy owners. And now Felix Dubrant looks like he might be the man on the outside in Boston. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think Boston is one of these teams in transition. Uh, neither Clay Buchholz or Felix Dubrant is as good as uh, Ruby De La Rosa or Brandon uh, Workman. Um, those are both better long-term rotation bets even during the year. Um, I, I think the Red Sox are in a little bit of turmoil. They may go to a six-man rotation for a week or so. They're going to try to make trades. Uh, watch the Red Sox here. Buchholz certainly was not impressive in his uh, return engagement in Seattle. 13 fly balls and only two strikeouts. Not what you expect to see from a quality pitcher. And finally, in Oakland, uh, Josh Reddick came off the DL. Kyle Blanks went on to the DL. What's the play here? Well, Reddick's knee, knee issues have definitely po- factored into his power outage. Uh, as Rod notes, uh, uh, he's, he's not a must-play right now in his return to Oakland, given his performance to date and Oakland's other options. But he's a left-handed batter with legitimate power when he's healthy. The real question is, how much will he cut into uh, to Vokes playing time or, or Gentry? Uh, there, there's a lot of talent here and position flexibility in Oakland. Stephen Vogt has been playing well as well, and so has Craig Gentry, actually. So the... Uh the uh, A's face uh, a dilemma of good op- options, I guess it sounds like. Jock, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Okay, PD, talk to you then. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he writes regularly for the site as well. He's also our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd is next. Todd Zola coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun, so I have more fun more often with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. One Month Games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games with the strategy and tactics of full-season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups and hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often, with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. This is Ron Chandler. The gates are open for the July games at ChandlerPark.com. Entry deadline is this Sunday with games starting at just nine bucks. And for the first time, you can organize private leagues with your friends. Monthly fantasy baseball, more drafts, more pennant races, more fun. Give it a try.
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes Edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. Keep your eyes open this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column looks at projectable chunks, redux. Our daily call-ups report looks at Giants corner infielder Adam Duvall, White Sox right-hander Eric Surkamp, and many others. And Rick Wilton's latest Dr. HQ injury report looks at two St. Louis starting pitchers, Toronto third baseman Brett Laurie, San Diego starter Andrew Kashner, and sadly many more. Plus, we have all our regular features, daily analysis of changes in playing time, performance validation in facts and flukes, all our buyer's guide, pitcher matchups reports, and much more. It's all on the site now or coming soon at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday Talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ChandlerPark.com, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. And great to have you. Uh, You wrote a column recently, I think at FantasyAlarm.com, talking about having been at the Fantasy Sports Trade Association Conference in San Francisco, and you said you left the conference feeling better about the future of daily fantasy games, starting with the game's legal situation. So what did you find out at the association conference? Well, I, it's, none of this is actually a secret, uh, at least in the, 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 the legality and that sort of thing. Uh, there are some people who are questioning whether daily will be able to survive. There are some people who... Uh, I know they're questioning fantasy and, you know, fantasy in general. And, and if, if the daily game, if something were to happen to the daily game, how would that then domino into high stakes and, and eventually into all sorts of fantasy? And I think it's a legit question, a legit concern. And I have it myself because as we've talked about, I'm involved in the daily, both as a player and an analyst and, uh, found out both through panel discussions and private talks that the FSTA is all over the issue about working with the daily sites to keep everybody in line, to make sure that the rules are written as such and make sure that the, the games are designed as such that the, uh, that the legality stays on the, on the good side of the issue, at least as the laws are presently written. Uh, so that was the, 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 the thing that was the best about it was the involvement of the FSTA. Not that I didn't expect it, but to hear it firsthand, uh, was, was, was the part that was the, was most heartening to me. Well, I've discussed this before on the show with various experts, including Glenn Colton, who, of course, has uh, a long track record of involvement in the legal aspects of fantasy baseball, including a landmark case that allowed the statistics to be used in the first place. And in in discussing that, the crux of the issue seems to be at what point does the game become a game of luck rather than a game of skill? And the argument, as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the... uh, the position is that playing the daily game, even though it's a very short-run thing, which seems to indicate that it's a game of luck, if you play often enough, it is a game of skill because good players tend to outperform bad players, uh, not on the field, but good owners in the in the fantasy leagues tend to outperform bad owners in those leagues because it's they apply the skill of playing daily fantasy uh, better than those other guys do. And the question is, why would anybody look at that and say, no, the, the point is it's still gambling because it's like poker? Well, yeah, you, you've got it right. It, at the crux of it is 
you know, knowing or thinking you know how a baseball player will perform on any given day. And it just, when you narrow that day, that, that sample down to one day, what people like to say luck skill, I just say there's, it, it's variance. I mean, it just sounds better that way. There's greater variance on a single day than there is on a season long projection or predictant prediction. Uh, you know, if you take somebody off the street and, and sit them down at a computer and say, pick a lineup. And if you take someone that knows a little bit about baseball and say, pick a lineup. And then, you know, someone that knows a little about daily and baseball and say, pick a lineup. I think you're going to get, you know, find that success rate grows as you go up that air quote, you know, skills ladder. Uh, so the, to me, you know, there is some skills involved. There is more variance involved that the, the your skill might not portend to victory as much as it might in some other endeavors. But over the long haul, whether you play volume on a single day or play a little bit over a long period of time, the, the more skilled players will have more success than the, you know, than the, the non-skilled players. And if that's the, if that's the, if that's the slippery slope, if that's the line, then yeah, fantasy should be considered to be legal. Now, of course, some of the states want money. They want the taxes, you know, in, in the, the way you can tax the skill game versus the luck game are a little bit different. So part of the agendas of individual states are, you know, money driven, which is, you know, always the case. But that's the other thing that we have to be careful about is understanding the fight we're fighting in the, and that's with the states and taxes and that sort of thing. And so these these states that you're talking about, they want to declare that these daily fantasy games are in fact gambling so that they can impose a tax or or how does that work? Yeah, that, now we're getting to an area that, that is a little bit out of my realm, but that's pretty much my understanding. Uh, yes, that the, there's some, or, or, or just that the, some of the states that, that, that outlaw the game have their own form of gambling and they're afraid that the fantasy might come in and, and take away from that revenue. So some of the, some of the states, you know, they're not many, but some of the arguments against legalizing it are, are, are more, you know, they're making up, not so much making up, but the reasons go beyond whether a fantasy game is a skill or not. There, it, it has to do with their own personal agenda and their ability to, to make their own money off of it. I think I understand. So they, they don't want daily fantasy baseball because they are, they are running some baseball-related uh, activity in their state that they're getting all the money from, and they don't want to surrender any part of it. Did, did you get the sense that any states are just looking to ban it for moral reasons or because they don't allow gambling in their state in, in any way, shape, or form, and, and maybe fantasy baseball is falling under the umbrella of gambling, therefore not legal for them? I don't, I didn't know that. I don't know about it that in that much depth. There's only, you know, so there's only a select hand few of states that, handful, I'm sorry, of states that presently you can't, and it's not just daily, it's some of them that the, 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 you can't play the NFBC or any pay for play game that you can't play in certain states, Arizona and Washington and, and a couple states in the Midwest. Uh, there was just, you know, Arizona just famously, not fame, well, somewhat famously, the, the long court battle, and once again, fantasy came out on the wrong side of the decision, and you st if you're in Arizona, you still can't play. Uh, that's probably the 
the state that we hear about the most as far as uh, fighting and, and trying to get it legalized and that sort of thing. Um, don't you know? I I don't know if it's necessarily just baseball related activities. It could be a state lottery. It could be anything, and they're just afraid that the, it's going Im- to Im- impact the revenue, the revenue stream, the taxes that the government can take. Seems uh, a little bit of a stretch to imagine that somebody's not going to play a Mega Millions or something because hey, now I can play fantasy baseball. You know, it just seems a little weird. Also, did you say the state of Washington is one of the states? So you can smoke pot. But you can't play uh, fantasy baseball. Apparently, yeah, I never thought of it that way. But that's, uh, I guess, maybe if you can play fantasy baseball for medicinal reasons, they can get around it. But I don't know. <laughs> that that would be uh, an excellent thing to approach your doctor with. Doc, I'm all nervous, and the only cure seems to be uh, a chance to play fantasy baseball on a daily basis. Can you write me a prescription? That might be that. That might be the way out. You also made an excellent point in your column, Todd, about the balance between casual or occasional players and what you call grinders—the guys who play every day or in or in much higher volume. How is that distinction important to the future of the game? Well, it it comes down to the churn rate. In that, you know, the, if you you know, it's a little bit broken down, a little too simple-minded. But if you've got you know, as you mentioned, if you've got the the occasional player. And the, the grinder, there's a combination of the revenue comes from both. Now, there are a lot more casual players than there are grinders. And I don't know if the money's equal, but, you know, there's a significant portion of the, of the income and revenue that, that are derived from each faction. And you need both factions in order to push the envelope as they're doing as far as the amount of prizes. You know, four, five, six, and up to seven-digit payouts on some of these games. Now, you need the volume. You need the uh, the volume players to contribute to the pot to play to enter multiple times in these contests with such a high payout, or else you're not going to fill them. And you know, the contest themselves. Part of the rules is you have to advertise the prize in advance, and you can't base it upon the number of players that are playing. So it's pretty much a guaranteed prize. And they're, you know, therefore they're responsible if not enough people fill up a contest. Uh, so you need both factions in order to do that. And if the, you know, the casual player it depends why they're playing. If they're, if they're playing just because it's fun, you know, I, they'll stick around. So they lose $2 in a head to head. So what? But, you know, if you can still try to earn money and play casually too. And if you think that you're gonna, you know, earn a couple bucks to be able to pay for a vacation or something, playing casually and you find out over time that it's not as easy as you thought well you're going to drop out so you sort of have to hope that the number of people that come into the game you know continue to come in to replace those that drop out and you know what is the what is the clientele what is the what is the cutoff limit what is the uh, you know how many people at what point how long does the game have to be around before you don't have people continuing to you know to, to play uh, and, you know, sometimes you go on to one of these 50-50 games where half the crowd wins, and you see literally the same team with the same points and, you know, 30 teams in the standing. So, you know, they enter the same team 30 times. And, you know, if, if they're not winning, you know, it's great because that's 30 teams that aren't winning. But if they're in the money, 
That's 30 teams that are in the money, and it can be kind of frustrating if you're not doing well that night to look up and see the same name above you all those times, and you start to wonder why, you know, I'm putting one lineup in, you know, this guy's putting 30, and, and just, you know, your head starts spinning, and you, you, you move on to some other game. Uh, similarly to uh, the FSTA getting involved with the, the legality issues, they're going to get involved with the regulation of these volume playing games are, are if you, you can inv- you have as many entries into one game as you want so long as the contest also has a similar game where you can only put one or two entries in or they limit the amount of entries into a game or they limit the amount of entries per day so they are creatively working with the daily game operators to find that balance so that the uh the capacity to 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 handle both factions is there and you know they can continue to provide these great prizes and also continue to pro- provide enjoyment for those that aren't necessarily looking for those great prizes they're just looking to have a good time you're listening to baseball hq radio talking with todd i'm patrick davitt with todd zola of BaseballHQ.com and ESPN and uh, pretty much every site in uh, in the known universe. And Todd, one of your sites is KFFL.com, and you have a round table there where you solicit opinions and conversation with various experts. You call them the Knights of the Round Table. And recently you raised the question with your Knights how to incorporate players' injury histories into consideration of roster moves for the second half. What did the Knights say about that? Yeah, this was a sort of a follow-up to our talk last week about the skills because I I had talked to the Knights in via the roundtable about assessing uh, skill changes as far as in-season uh, assessment, in-season projections go. So we we sort of offhandedly mentioned uh, Troy Tulowitzki and, and and Scott Casimir last week as, as as players that haven't been injured yet and often do and i was so let's let's find out i got you know i got people that play the game at a high level how do they think about these players now they answered the question more from the from the mindset of of a player of of a, of a participant playing in their fantasy league you know my i'm you know i'm selfishly my agenda is to figure out you know to hear what they're saying and then incorporate that into projections because I, in-season projections, what do people want from in-season projections? Do they want me to say how I think a player is going to do? Do they want me to systematically figure out a way to assess playing time if they haven't been hurt yet, and they usually do? So I was just kind of curious. And the overriding answer was they don't really think about it as necessarily as far as they don't have a number of at-bats or a number of innings in their head. It's more they let their team and their team's situation dictate the needs, what they need to do. If they're behind and they have a weak middle infield and they have an opportunity to pick up Tulowitzki, and the only way they're going to make up points is if, if, if Tulowitzki has that year we've all been waiting for where he doesn't hit the DL for an extended period of time and they're not going to win if they don't pick him up, well, then they're going to pick him up. That's pretty much what you know what they were saying. If you own Troy Tulowitzki and you're doing well, and someone makes you an offer, and they feel that with the player that is offered, they can sustain their lead, then they'll make the trade. So it, it, it's not it's not so much that they sit and they come up with a round number or you know I think Scott Casmer is going to get X more starts. It's what 
what can if I'm behind and I have a hole in my staff and Scott Kazmier, do I feel he's going to continue to pitch like he's going to? And if he does, I'm going to make up the pitching points. That's why they go and get Scott Kazmier. It's not so much, oh, no, I'm not, he only has eight starts. I'm not going to get him. It's, uh, you know, I have no other offers out there. Uh, I need Kazmier to win, so I'll make the deal. Did anybody cover the idea of, okay, I've, I've, I need to make up points and I've got two potential trades pretty much equal. I give up Edwin Encarnacion, I get A or B. And if A is Scott Casimir, maybe B is somebody with a little better injury track record, that might affect their decision-making? Um, I think it was implied that that you, you go with the injury route as a last-case scenario or out of desperation. I don't know that that was said directly. I mean, I think a... A slightly better thought might be if you could get a better injury player versus a slightly lesser non-injury prone player, which way would you go? And I think uh, reading reading the minds or reading through the through the lines between the lines of the answers, it, it would again be dictated by what you needed. If the if you could get the job done with the lesser player, would go would go that route. Um, if you, you know, again, if you need, I think, I think the pitching, you could probably get safer players. You know, it, it wouldn't only be Scott Casimir. You'd be able to get another player, be able to buy low on James Shields or Matt Kane or something like that. Uh, so, it, you know, practically speaking, it, the, the situation might not present itself as, as the hypothetical that we did. Whereas, I mean, there's, there's not many out there that can do what Tulowitzki can do when he's healthy. But, um, I, I think that, it, you know, from my point of view, I never actually got the answer I wanted. Yeah, when I look at your projections, I want to know thus. So I was sort of still a little bit in the dark. Uh, but what I didn't hear was, well, if he's not hurt, I don't, I, I, I don't expect him to, to get hurt. I think they all didn't plan on it, but in the back of their minds, they realized that it could happen, that there's a better chance that a player with an injury history gets hurt than one without, not to say that, you know, they'll never, that'll never happen. Let me look at Cliff Lee, but, uh, I, I don't know that I need to dock Tulowitzki for the full complement of at bats that I dock, that I docked him for back in April. I don't think I need to dock him for that full amount now, assuming he'll miss that, that, that time. I think we have to say, well, he's made it through half the season unscathed or relatively unscathed. Let's prorate the amount of time that I was going to dock him over the second half. So it's still there. I'm still accounting for it, but I'm not giving him 200 more plate appearances where someone else is getting 300 or three and a quarter because uh, I expected Tulowitzki to miss the full 150 or 200, whatever it might be. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm knocking that in, in half so that instead of 325, I'm giving Tulowitzki 275. So it's still there, but it's not uh, as hurtful to because unfortunately I say unfortunately because I you know I think it's unfortunate some people look at those numbers in a vacuum when they make trades they look at the HQ values and I need to trade a twenty dollar player for a twenty dollar player or else my league's going to veto the trade and we've as we've talked about ad nauseum that's not the way to go about doing it but practically speaking some people and leagues do it that way. And often because the situation in the league requires it. You know, when you were talking about 
uh, got the Knights of the Roundtable suggesting that it was a situational decision. That is, I need Scott. Scott Kazmier's the guy I can get. I need him to pitch another 90 innings and uh, and to be a $30 pitcher, $25 pitcher, because that's my only chance to win. Therefore, that's a chance I'm willing to take. Reminds me of, I used to play a lot of bridge, and I still read a lot of uh, columns about bridge and so forth. And there's a there's a kind of a rule in bridge that when you pick up your cards and you and you set your contract that if to make the contract the king of spades has to be in a certain position then you have to assume it's there because you're going to lose anyway if it's not so you have to play the hand as though you know where the king of spades is even if you don't actually know and if it works out in your favor good for you and another thing that popped into my mind while you were speaking about the projections is isn't one of the difficulties that when you put out a player projection for an entire year or for a part of a year as we're talking about now you can only put down one set of values. Troy Tulowitzki is going to have X number of at-bats, X number of home runs, even though you know there's some probability that he's going to lose time to injury, and therefore what you would really be better off presenting is Troy Tulowitzki has a, a 60% chance of, of this amount of home runs, a 20% chance of that amount of home runs, and a 20% chance of no home runs because he gets hurt, or something like that, a continuum of outcomes rather than rather than a single set, but you can't present them that way because there's not enough room. You'd, you'd have a, 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 pre, a projections presentation that was 1,000 pages long. Right. Uh, exactly. I mean, there, uh, there are places there are sources out there that do just that sort of thing they do uh probability interview intervals and that and, and they do project or present pres- their projections in that manner um part of it is you know part of it you know is, is space and, and the other part of it is there's some people out there that that don't they you know i don't care about all that tell me tell me what they're going to do and it drives you nuts but that that's that's what they want um I've always, I've often, you know, I, I need to think about that a little bit more, even in the, even in the beginning of the season. Cause the other aspect of it is, and we've mentioned this as well, it's, it's not just Troy Tulowitzki. It's that lineup spot that Tulowitzki occupies. So when he's out, you're going to be able to put somebody else in. So if you see, you know, if you need $20 worth of value and, and, we have Tulowitzki for 16 or 17 because we're anticipating he gets hurt. Well, so long as the replacement player makes up the difference, then it's still a, you know, he's still worthy. He can still help you. He's still worthy of that spot. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, I don't know if it's necessarily moving parts, but there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that goes on when you, you know, it's more than just a static number next to a name as far as the value goes. And finally, uh, Todd, I've noticed a number of experts around the web, and it's even popped up a little bit in the Baseball HQ forums, that are advising fantasy owners to buy low on Shin Su Chu. And it's one of those things that it seems like so many people are advising doing it that if you're the guy who owns Shin Su Chu, you're starting to think, well, maybe I ought not to be selling. But assuming that uh, there is an opportunity to make a buy low uh, decision like that, how do you assess it? How do you look at a guy who's underperforming and say, this is a guy who's a buy low opportunity versus this is a guy who's just stinking and is going to keep stinking and I don't want any part. Right. What I do is I, um, first thing I do is I do sort of an overall skills assessment and then depending upon the player, uh, whatever their particular contributions might be, I'll, I'll look to see, you know, are they struggling in batting average and why? Are they struggling in power and, and why? Are they struggling in speed and why? 
uh, we're talking chew, so you know, sort of talking about hitters, it's sort of analogous to pitching. But I'll sort of do it that way, is start with an overall picture and then move on to the different aspects of their game and try to discern one way or another why it is they're not performing as expected. Okay, so give me an example. We look at Shin Su Chu. A lot of people are disappointed, well, pretty much with his whole game. But he's not generating a lot of power so far. So how do you look at him and, th- and try to assess whether that lack of power is a real thing or it could, could be due for a rebound? Well, the first thing, before I get to the power, I'll take a to my overall skills assessment is basically looking at contact and walk rate. Uh, if If those metrics are significantly different than career norms, you know, all, all other skills, in my mind anyway, have a pretty good chance of following. So, I mean, talking about Chu in particular, he's walking with about as much as he normally does, uh, and which is a lot, <laughs> and which is one reason why people are saying, you know, go for him. And his, while his contact is, is worse than last season, it's not any worse than it was the previous couple. Just last year happened to be a very, very good year. So as far as that goes, you know, okay, good. Uh, his skills seem to be okay. Let's move on. And as you suggest, what about his power? Uh, choose an interesting sort in that he doesn't hit a whole lot of fly balls. Very few, at, you know, 30% fly ball rate. So his power is always going to be capped. So when I'm looking at Chu, I, I like power, but I don't, necessarily get him for power he's got seven homers if you prorate that it's 14 if you expected 20 you know 14 to 20 is that really horrible if, if that's the only if that was his only issue would we even be having this discussion so it, it, specifically to chew and eh, i'm not so concerned about the power you know he a couple uh, pulls a couple more balls down the line and and suddenly 14 becomes 16 or 17 and you know when you're one in 20 that's that's fine Chu, to me, the, the other two issues were, were more batting average and speed. Okay, I'll, I'll bite on that. But first, let me say, uh, uh, you make an interesting point about the 20 home run expectation and he finishes with 14 or 15. And did he really fail his expectation? And we know from, from the variance rates or error bars that surround baseball player performance that, in fact, if you project 20 home runs for Shinsu Chu and he hits 15, he actually met his projection. He was on the low end of the range of possible outcomes, but it's not like he was wildly short. It would be the same thing as if he projected 20 and he finished with 24 or 25 it's not a failed projection. It's just that he exceeded it within the range of variability that you'd expect anyway. Uh, so having said that, batting average falls into the same kind of kettle of fish. So how do you look at batting average? Well, we've sort of, you know, we've talked contact. It's not great, but it's not anything that should be contributing to the complete drop in batting average. So we move on to batting average and balls in play and line drive rate and, and the distribution of hits. And, you know, his line drives are down. But again, not enough to account for the, the complete drop in batting average and balls in play. So I'll then move on to hard contact, which is a metric available on the, uh, in the player links from, and on Baseball HQ for Baseball HQ subscribers. And darned if it's not actually better than it normally is. And as, as, as your research has shown, you want hard contact. Hard contact leads to hits. So from, at least from a batting average point of view, yeah, Chu is a buy low. He's he's been snake bit. He's hitting the ball hard, but it's just not it's just not falling in. A few less line drives, but you know it's not enough to account for it. So at least as far as batting average goes, 
yeah, I, I think Chu is due for an upturn regression in the in the good direction, and I think we'll see Chu's batting average climb. From, from that point of view, uh, I, I agree with with all those that are saying Chu's a buy low. And he's he's usually a pretty decent uh, stolen base contributor. He's not a, a Rajai Davis by any means. He's not a Billy Hamilton. But we can usually count on him to be a positive contributor in that regard. And this year, again, a little bit of a fall-off. So how do you assess a, a player's ability to contribute speed to your team? Yeah, this is a little bit odd because, uh, quite frankly, the Rangers would let me run. Uh, they let everybody run. They are, they're among the league leaders in steals. And they're doing it with a 65% success rate, which is terrible. Okay, they wouldn't let me run. They may let you run with a 65% success. And that's terrible. Uh, as we've discussed and I've written about for HQ, teams are more cognizant of that. And teams that run usually do so because they're successful. Uh, so that aspect of it is a little bit curious. You know, he's coming, choose first year at a new team. Is it, you know, is it the team? tendencies and the answer should be no he should be running now not only is he you know not stealing he, he's three for six his his particular you know he's 50 percent which is well below his norm is he hurt well he's had a bad ankle for the entire season which could also be influencing influencing his, his batting average to a certain extent uh maybe he's not able to run out or beat out some of these grounders or, or that sort of thing so steals, I'm a little less confident that he'll be able to just, you know, run again. I think if he were healthy, he would be given the opportunity to. So I think there might be something there or they just might he might be scared about re-injuring himself. Uh, the team, they, it looks like they'll let him run again. They, they, they let everybody run and it doesn't really matter if they're safe or out. They'll, they'll let you keep running. Uh, will that, well, I, do I think he's going to get more than three over the, going forward? Yeah. But I don't know if I'm expecting double digits going forward, like he would be getting on a, on a pace to steal 20 for the season. So, you know, overall, while I, I might think Chu is a buy low because of batting average, someone else might see more power and more speed coming than I do of those three areas of those three facets. I see a big bump in batting average coming, not necessarily the counting stats that, that someone else might see. And so uh, whether he's a buy low, uh, returning back to our where's the king of spades analogy, if you need power or if you need speed or if you need those counting stats to make uh, to make a move in your league, then maybe Shin Su Chu's batting average rebound that you're expecting isn't going to be enough. And therefore, even though he's a buy low candidate as a batting average player, he's not really a buy low candidate for a power or power speed type player. Right, unless... Unless there's no other options out there, and the only way I could possibly win is to give up my my minor league draft pick for Shin Chu Chu, and just hope that 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 Zola's wrong and he starts running again and, and picks up those steals. So you know, again, it becomes a matter of desperation. But I'm looking everywhere else first. I'm I'm first exhausting all other avenues before I, you know, desperate time require desperate measures before I say, all right, Shin Chu Chu, you're the guy. So, you know, if I have to, if I absolutely have to, I will. But, man, I'm, 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 you know, burning the midnight oil to find someone else instead. Okay, Todd Zola, thanks very much for joining us again. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time for another Talk with Todd. Excellent. Talk to you soon, Patrick.
Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, ChandlerPark.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall ESPN, and he appears every Friday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our HQ commentaries are next. Stay with us. We have pitcher matchups and master notes on Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ron Chandler. Here is one more final shout-out for the monthly games at ChandlerPark.com. Here are five reasons to play in a July league. Number one, you don't have to give up on 2014 if your other teams are out of contention. July League will give you a chance to reassess, reboot, and return to action. Number two, you can stop agonizing over your expanding disabled list. Play in a July League and you don't have to predict when Will Myers or Cargo might return or whether Brandon Belt and CeCe Sabathia will be productive when they come off the DL. Just focus on players who are healthy and productive now. Number three, you get to use more roster management skills than playing in daily leagues. In a one-month league, you're managing a roster, not just picking players. Plus, you can enjoy the continuity and drama of following the standings every day. Number four, you can use the one-month format to test new strategies. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to invest 90% of your budget on hitting or build a roster full of hometown players? Try it out in July with minimal investment and quicker results. And number five, you can stay engaged with baseball. If your attention is already starting to shift to NFL training camps, a July league will keep you focused on the diamond. And a pennant race is just weeks away. Try us out. Deadline is this Sunday at ChandlerPark.com. I gambled on, on other sports other than baseball. I never gambled on baseball, but uh, I think I'm uh, being punished pretty severely. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time for our regular Friday commentaries. Ron Chandler is on deck with Master Notes, and we lead off this inning with our pitcher matchup segment. Our Baseball HQ matchups rating look at every starting pitcher matchup using pitcher skills and recent performance, as well as the strength of the opposing team, to arrive at a matchup rating from plus 5 to minus 5. We recommend pitchers who have matchup ratings of 2.0 or higher, while we warn you against pitchers who have ratings of 0 or lower. Everything in between is a risk versus benefit play you should assess in your team and league contexts. Now looking at coming matchups for Angels left-hander Hector Santiago in Kansas City to take on the Royals and righty Jordano Ventura, Arizona right-hander Josh Kalmenter at San Diego against Padres southpaw Eric Stultz, and more, Here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. This weekend marks the mathematical midpoint of the 2014 season. After Sunday, all but three teams will have played at least 81 games. So let's use the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to see which pitchers have matchup ratings that are half-baked. There are only two pitchers with negative matchup ratings this weekend, one in the American League on Saturday and one in the National League on Sunday. Two other pitchers have matchup ratings barely above zero, one in the National League on Saturday and one in the American League on Sunday. On Saturday in the American League, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim lefty Hector Santiago makes his third start since spending May in the minors. His matchup rating is minus 015. Santiago has yet to win a game, and outside of two inexplicably good starts against Oakland at the Big A, he has had PQS disasters in four of his other seven starts. In those seven starts, Santiago has made it through the sixth inning only once. The Angels are on the road in Kansas City. Santiago has four road starts and suffered PQS disasters in two of them. 
His opponent is the young gun Jordano Ventura. Since missing a start in May, Ventura has won three of his four starts with two PQS doms and no disasters. Stay away from Santiago. In the National League on Saturday, the San Diego Padres send Eric Stoltz to the hill with a matchup rating of 0-14. The Padres are under 500 at home, and their opponents, the Arizona Diamondbacks, are an even 500 on the road. They bring in Josh Colmenter, who has a matchup rating of 188. Outside of one sad start in Colorado, half of Colmenter's other four road starts have been PQS dominant. Meanwhile, half of Stultz's six home starts have been PQS disasters. Keep a safe distance from Stultz. On Sunday in the American League, the Twins send their young gun Kyle Gibson into Texas to duel Colby Lewis. The Rangers are five games under 500 at home, and the Twins are six games under 500 on the road. Gibson holsters a matchup rating of 0-10. He's been saddled with three PQS zeros, and they've all been on the road. Lewis has a matchup rating of 105. He's been consistently mediocre in 13 starts, with eight PQS threes. But look for Lewis to gun down Gibson. And in the National League on Sunday, we have the lowest matchup rating of the weekend, coupled with the largest differential between matchup ratings, 287. The Rockies' Jorge De La Rosa heads into Milwaukee on the wrong side of the equation with a matchup rating of minus 022. Three of his past seven starts and two of his past three starts have been PQS disasters. On the road, the Rockies are nine games under 500. At home, the Brewers are four games over 500. Their starter is Giovanni Gallardo. His matchup rating is 265, and he has four straight PQS doms, including two at home. On the year, Gallardo has 10 PQS doms and one PQS disaster. Keep your distance from De La Rosa. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. If your league rules or format let you take advantage of pitcher streaming, you need to check out the daily matchups reports at BaseballHQ.com as well as the exclusive Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups tool. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at the ongoing battle, here's BaseballHQ.com founder and fanalytics columnist Ron Chandler. The battle never ends. For the first two decades of fantasy, Major League Baseball would not recognize us as a legitimate market. They considered fantasy baseball too close to gambling, and after all they went through with Pete Rose, there was no way they could be associated with anything that even smelled of gambling. We fought hard to separate ourselves from that perception. In 2006, the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act included a special carve-out that specifically defined us as a skill-based activity and not gambling. The NFL got it. Heck, they embraced fantasy years before Congress got involved. And fantasy football has exploded over the past decade. There is such a synergy now that the San Francisco 49ers are building a fantasy football lounge in their new stadium. It will be big enough to seat 1,600 people. They get it. Over the past decade, MLB has relented somewhat, slowly allowing fantasy into their peripheral vision, but conditionally. We were welcome if we brought in money. We were never a partner, only a revenue source. 
In fact, they tried to make it illegal for fantasy baseball companies to use player names in our games without exorbitant licensing fees, and CDM Sports had to take the battle to several courts before MLB was shot down. One would think they'd get it by now. But Pete Rose is back, and he is like kryptonite. For me personally, I'm not the biggest Rose fan, but I am able to separate his on-field achievements from his off-field transgressions. I think it is ridiculous that he is barred from an institution that celebrates on-field achievement, but that's just me. Rose continues to combat a lifetime ban that was set down 25 years ago and gain reinstatement to the sport in which he holds records. He's been trying to clean up his image. Granted, he's probably not doing himself any favors by spending his days signing autographs for cash in uh, Las Vegas. That might not smell great, but it's completely legal. Heck, if MLB really had an issue with the entity of Las Vegas, they wouldn't put a minor league club there and keep it on the list of potential expansion cities. But here's the kicker. Rose has now become an investor in a fantasy sports company. Sportsbeep runs daily fantasy games. Rose is trying to help them raise half a million dollars for a new app. Rose said, quote, There are 50 million people in this country who play fantasy sports. It's not like some kind of illegal gambling. Well, there are actually 41 million in the U.S. and Canada combined, but what's another 9 million more or less? Bob Nightingale of USA Today wrote about this and characterized Rose's latest venture as raising eyebrows. He wrote that this won't earn much sympathy from Bud Selig. Hmm. Why? Fantasy sports are completely legal. Despite any appearance otherwise, daily fantasy sports meet the conditions set down for illegal fantasy play. So why is Rose's involvement raising eyebrows? Is it because anything he touches has to be viewed with skepticism? I think, to MLB, the valid equation is Rose equals gambling, and anything even remotely associated with him has to be viewed dubiously. Maybe this becomes just one more way that MLB can justifiably keep a safe distance from fantasy sports. It took three decades for MLB to even say the word partner when it came to the players' union. I suspect it might take just as long for them to see fantasy leaguers as anything other than misguided opportunists who bastardize the grand old game. So they'll continue to treat us with benign tolerance, just so long as we keep sending them money. And that is one more reason why MLB will always be behind the NFL in progressive thinking. It's sad for all of us who love the grand old game, and more so for those of us who need fantasy sports to help us stay engaged. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler from BaseballHQ.com. Ron Chandler is BaseballHQ.com's founder and fanalytics columnist and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for June the 27th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 46 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. 
Our regular Friday Talk with Todd correspondent was Todd Zola. Our HQ Matchups commentator, BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com founder and Fanalytics columnist Ron Chandler. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed is at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. But more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in four days with our Tuesday Tout edition featuring Dr. HQ Rick Wilton. On the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, it is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.